Hi everyone, welcome back. This is Graeme Sait, and you're about to experience episode 5 of series 2 of the Nutrition Farming Podcast. I figured that I've recently delivered two pretty intensive episodes on minerals. That was in the form of the boron and the sulfur sessions. And I thought perhaps it's time to balance it out a little with a return to the microbial side of the nutrition farming equation. Remembering, of course, that the nutrition farming concept involves the interplay between minerals, microbes and humus. It seemed appropriate this time to shine a light upon my most favourite of microorganisms, and I'm talking about the mighty mycorrhizal fungi. Here we're talking about a creature which has given 500 million years of service to our planet, and yet we've killed off 90% of these blokes in a few short decades. It's part of a bigger picture where in an eye blink in time, which 10 decades is, we've thumbed our nose at nature and we've brought ourselves to the brink of actually crashing the system. The Anthropocene is a new era where, for the first time ever, a single species has impacted the ongoing viability of the planet. Fascinatingly, we might even be calling on this ancient hero, this mycorrhizal fungi, to pull us from the mire. So soon we'll look at how and why I'm making such an extreme claim. But before then, I want you to use your imagination for a little bit. I want you to imagine an information superhighway that fast tracks communication between plants and plants, communication between microbes to microbes and between plants and microbes. And that same highway also doubles for hard goods delivery. Now, I'm not talking about a new internet hybrid here. I'm talking about something that's only recently really been researched and it's referred to as the mycorrhizal network or the MN. Now, brilliant US mycologist Paul Stamets, he's one of my favourites, you can check him out on YouTube, he was the first to coin the term the Earth's natural internet to describe this amazing kind of interconnected phenomenon. This network and our relatively new understanding of this network redefines our understanding of plants as sentient creatures quietly growing in an inert soil. Because what we see is that by linking into this fungal network, plants can help out their neighbours by sharing nutrients and information. And microbes can have a similar direct link to plants and to each other. I'll give you a little example. A mature tree in a forest has its seed distributed by bees and birds, but it never loses connection to its offspring. These young seedlings often battle to survive, sometimes hundreds of metres away from the, the mother tree as such, and they battle to survive on the forest floor with very little sunlight to sponsor photosynthesis. So in that instance, the mother can somehow sense the stress of her offspring and she sends those youngsters some of her own carbon, exudates, and she sends that via the mycorrhizal network to ensure that they survive and thrive. It's really cute to be sure, but it also highlights a little benefit of retaining this interconnectedness. The potential benefits of reclaiming this network on our farms, that's when it gets truly exciting. For example, plant communication via the mycelium network has huge implications, including enhanced disease protection. So let's talk about a couple of studies that relate to that. In 2010, Ren Z. Zhang from South China Agriculture University found that when attacked by pathogens, plants release chemical signals on the mycorrhizal network that warn their neighbours 
of the impending attack. So some of the plants in this study were colonised with AMF, which is the term we use to describe mycorrhizal fungi, I'll explain it later, while others were infected with a disease called Alternaria. Now most of you probably know that brown spot that begins on the lower leaves and eventually consumes the entire plant. So what happened? Well, 65 hours after that initial disease inoculum, and of course the inoculum of mycorrhizal fungi, the word had spread. The AMF plants fueled the protective systems up and minimised the pathogen damage. Wren then said, well, let's try and deliberately infect other plants, and he found that it became much more difficult in the colonised plants. And if he could successfully bring alternaria into those plants, it created much less damage whenever mycelium were present. Wren concluded that tomatoes can use the mycorrhizal network to eavesdrop on the defence responses of their neighbours and then increase their own defence resistance against pathogens. That's pretty cool. And then in 2013, David Johnson and his colleagues from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, they demonstrated that broad beans shared the news of aphid attacks on the mycorrhizal network in much the same way. Again, those beans with mycelium activated their anti-aphid chemical defence responses, and those without did not. In this case, David encased the plants with plastic above ground because there's such a thing as atmospheric messaging where plants can sort of talk to each other via the atmosphere or send messages via the atmosphere, and so he had to exclude that possibility. And so Johnson concluded that the warning was definitely transferred via mycorrhizal networks. Now, the implications here are simply profound. If we knock out this messaging potential, we're going to use more and more chemicals with less and less response. And and wait a minute, that's just what we're doing. So let's have a more close look at AMF. Let's discover what's been killing them and let's look at how we might encourage them back. So there are two forms of mycorrhizal fungi. One of them surrounds plant roots and another one physically attaches, drills into the plant roots and then begins this massive extension. In both cases, they harvest glucose exudates from the plants. So they're kind of like a parasite, but they give much more than what they take. So what are the two forms? Well, ectomycorrhizal fungi organisms, they form a fine kind of spidery web around each root. And you find them usually on things like conifers and some of the hardwoods. However, the more intrusive of the pair, that's the one that drills in and then begins the extension, that's much more prevalent. That's called endomycorrhizal fungi, and you'll find them attached to the roots of over 80% of all crops. They were originally called VAM. You might have heard that term before. It's not used anymore. That VAM stands for vesicular arbuscular mycorrhizal. But their classification was recently changed to AMF, which stands for arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, and that it's what we're going to call them during this presentation, so that's what I'm referring to. So this maze of hyphae filaments that grows once they've penetrated the root effectively increases the original surface area of the roots by up to a 1,000%. That's massive. Root benefits, and there's plenty of them, are magnified tenfold, and the plant becomes perfectly positioned to really achieve its true genetic potential. Now, there are a couple of plants that don't have mycorrhizal colonisation, and they're brassicas, and kinopods, C-H-E-N-O-P-O-D-S. So brassicas release kind of chemical exudates that are quite handy because they repel nematodes, but those same chemicals, isocyathionates, they also discourage mycorrhizal fungi. Kinopods 
tend to flourish in salty or alkaline soils. They include things like well, salt bush and the salty soils, everything from the beet family, spinach, quinoa and amaranth. It's a pretty small group, that's the group. And you might have heard me mention quinopods relative to their inclusion, just 1% inclusion in a cocktail cover crop. And that makes the difference between just how well that cover crop functions. And I won't talk about that now, but you've probably heard me talk about it before. So AMF creates structures within root cells that are called arbuscules. And these facilitate the transfer of nutrients between the plants and the fungi. Now, as I mentioned, fossil studies have revealed the presence of these creatures 500 million years ago, but they were only really recognised last century. And serious study has only really happened in the last 25 to 30 years. So where we're at now, well, it's now acknowledged that these quite compromised creatures may be the single most important tool available to reverse global warming. They might even be the most important creature on the planet in this point in time, and I'll explain why I'm making that rather extreme statement. So 30% of the CO2 in the atmosphere that's thickening the blanket, trapping the heat and changing our world, 30% of that came from the massive humus loss the 470,000 million tonnes, the 470 gigatons that we've contributed that used to be in the soil as part of the carbon cycle and our mismanagement of soils, it's now in the atmosphere and it's the lion's share of what's trapping the heat. I mean, it's almost double everything else we've done. So, that's a little bit of uh, background. In 1996, a researcher called Sarah F. Wright discovered something called glomalin. Now, this is a sticky substance produced by mycorrhizal fungi that generates stable humus in the soil. And it's really interesting when we look at the decline in humus and we look at the decline in AMF in our soil and we understand how interlinked the decline of both and we start to understand why that is. So the major producers of stable carbon in the soil are mycorrhizal fungi. All fungi can do it. Mycorrhizal fungi are the big players. And of course, this substance called glomalin is a huge player here. That substance is produced by the glomalus strain of mycorrhizal fungi. That's the most common strain of AMF. And these fungi use sugar exudates, carbon from the plant, to make glomalin. This remarkable material kind of permeates organic matter and it binds it to silt and to sand and to clay particles in the soil. And the substance itself has got 40% carbon, but it's responsible for that all-important aggregation. It creates aggregates that stabilise carbon in the soil and prevent its return to the atmosphere as part of the carbon cycle. It's a glycoprotein, so it stores carbon in its protein and carbohydrate subunits, and it contributes more nitrogen carbon to the soil than do the hyphae or any other soil microorganisms. So it's a really big player. So... How important is it? Well, research now suggests that glomalin accounts for almost one-third of the stored carbon in the soil and that that carbon can remain in the soil for four decades. That's what the term stable carbon refers to. That's the complex of humus and clay that creates that stability. So it'll last longer than most of us. It's not too difficult in that context to imagine a time in the near future where there'll be legislation protecting these critically important humus-building organisms. Because unfortunately, much of modern agriculture involves practices that compromise AMF fungi, and this is one of the many reasons why nutrition farming's the shape of the future, if that future is even going to remain viable. But the AMF story is much more than the planet-saving potential of their carbon sequestering capacity. They're also critically important in helping us counter the increasing stresses linked to climate change. 
and, of course, our mistreatment in the environment. Two little examples of our misuse and abuse of non-renewable resources, for example, relates to the minerals phosphorus and potassium. Both minerals are now considered to have a use-by date in terms of what's left in the ground to mine. Now, this is something you need to know. When we reach halfway with a non-renewable resource, without exception, the price rises and rises and rises. No exceptions in the history of non-renewable resources. Now, some countries have already limited phosphate exports in recognition of this impending issue. But basically, AMF, what have they got to do with it? Well, AMF fungi are seriously well-researched in terms of their capacity to access the huge body of locked up phosphate in our soils. It's widely recognised that you just get 27% of applied phosphate. Your DAP and MAP, you get 27% of it, and the balance of it becomes part of a $10 billion frozen reserve in our soils. Now, phosphate is the most immobile of major minerals in the soil, and zinc is a close second, so the massive hyphae root extension that comes with AMF allows much greater reach to access both phosphate and zinc. The maze of fine filaments is also constantly releasing acid exudates to serve to gently break the bond between locked up phosphate and calcium and that effectively increases supply and uptake of both minerals to your crop and that duo involves the two most important minerals for photosynthesis, calcium and phosphorus, two most important single minerals for the most important process of them all, photosynthesis. So AMF allows access to both minerals or improves access. In 1992, a couple of researchers called Ascon and Baria showed that AMF inoculated plants absorb and utilise potassium much more efficiently. Now, potassium is the single most expensive fertiliser input, you know, in terms of major fertilisers, and the cost of input, as I said, will only increase as world supplies dwindle. AMF can reduce potassium leaching, and they can help gain access to potassium trapped between clay platelets. They can drive their hyphae into those little clay platelets and literally suck out the potassium in soils of that nature. In 1994, McSood and some of his mates, they repeated those findings and really showed that AMF can be of incredible value in terms of the mineral potassium. But it doesn't stop there in relation to better mineralisation in AMF plants. In 1994, Marshner and Dalai found that AMF inoculated plants contain significantly higher levels of calcium, magnesium, copper, zinc and iron. And in 1999, Al-Karate and Clark repeated those findings. So it's not just about zinc and phosphorus and calcium. It's also about a whole range of other minerals, including the most abundant of all. We're going to talk for a few minutes about AMF and free nitrogen. The atmosphere contains the equivalent of 5,000 truckloads of urea per hectare. This nitrogen gas in the atmosphere is where plants were supposed to access the majority of their nitrogen requirements. However, access to what I call the free gift has been seriously compromised by our mismanagement of our soils and our misunderstanding of the full benefits of soil biology. So what we're talking about here is nitrogen-fixing organisms that are the key to accessing this free gift. And several recent studies have shown that both major forms of nitrogen-fixing organisms, so these are the guys that live in the rhizobium bacteria that live in the little nodules on legumes and the free-living nitrogen-fixing bacteria that surround plant roots to access sugar to energise nitrogen fixation, Both creatures convert nitrogen gas in the atmosphere into ammonium nitrogen in the soil and 
the importance of that source of ammonium nitrogen in terms of plant resilience is huge and can't be overemphasised. So mycorrhizal fungi are the perfect partners for nitrogen-fixing organisms. In fact, American BD consultant Hugh Lovell felt really strongly about this. Now, Hugh was a wonderful man and he's sadly no longer with us, but he lived with me for a few months at one point and he always claimed that there was no microbe partnership in the soil that's more productive. It's a kind of a synergistic relationship where AMF produce a constant trickle feed of phosphate because they're breaking the bond between calcium and phosphate and the nitrogen fixers need that. They need an ongoing supply of phosphorus to make ATP to fuel the nitrogenase enzyme that is responsible for converting the gas into plant food. And in return, the nitrogen fixers supply nitrogen to build protein and you need a lot of protein to make that massive maze of hyphae. You can't just suck all that protein from the plant. You need supplemental sources and that's part of the relationship. You claim that if you can get both of these creatures firing in your soil, there'll always be a smile on your face because you've really seriously reduced your requirement for two of the most expensive fertiliser inputs. Now, in our research farms, we often combine platform, which is our AMF inoculum, and we put that with our nitrogen-fixing inoculum based on a zodiacal called BioEnd, and there's zero doubt that they sing when you put them together. Okay, so it's time for some of my larrikin Australian humour. I apologise for anyone who takes offence, but, you know, sometimes it is a a little bit out there, some of this humour, but just, um, if you don't like it, just move on and skip this section. But, okay, here's the joke. So, there's a guy getting married on Saturday. Big decision, he's in his mid-30s and not been married previously. So it's Friday and he decides to drive out into the countryside and contemplate his brave new future, and he stops at a little roadside cafe in the middle of nowhere, and he's drinking his coffee, and he's thinking about his decision and his new life, and he starts thinking about friends and family that have been married previously, whose weddings he'd been invited to, and and he's gone, or he's sent presents if he couldn't make it, and he counts 32 friends and family members who have been married in the last sort of dozen or so years, And then he gets the divorces and he's horrified to realise that 17 of the 32 are already divorced. And of course, unfortunately in Australia, that's the biggest. 40% of first marriages fail in divorce. And you think, well, second time round, 60% of second marriages end in divorce. And then you think, well, third time lucky, surely. And 80% of third marriages in this country end in divorce. So I guess we're not learning our lessons, but there are other reasons for that we won't discuss now. I'm not going to digress too much at this point. So he's thinking those thoughts, and then he notices at the back of this cafe is an elderly couple, and a seriously elderly couple, mid-80s, and they're holding hands and staring lovingly into each other's eyes, and they're talking rather loudly because both of them are a little hard of hearing, and he can't help but overhear their conversation. And the gentleman says to his lady, do you remember where we are here at the moment, darling? And she said, yes, I do. This is a spot 60 years ago, almost to the day, we were returning from the wedding ceremony to our honeymoon hotel. And in those days, you didn't make love before marriage. And we were literally burning with desire for each other. So we remembered at the back of this little cafe is a tree-enclosed private area that only a few locals know about. And we decided to park the car and we walked out under the moonlight and made love for the first time and they both giggled at that memory and then a spark came into the old gentleman's eyes 
And he said, do you reckon you might be still up for it? And she said, yeah, I reckon I am. And this guy's overhearing this conversation and can't believe what he's hearing, but the old couple get up and head out to this private tree-enclosed area that they've spoken about. And he sat for a while and he thought, well, why is the universe, I put these people here at this huge time of my life, perhaps there's a lesson that I'm supposed to learn. So you're not normally voyeuristic watching eight-year-olds make love, but he decided that perhaps he was supposed to learn something. So he headed out. They'd been there for a few minutes before him. He came to a tree-enclosed, sort of a vine-enclosed archway, and he pulled back the vines and poked his head gingerly around the corner, and the sight that greeted his eyes shocked him to his core. The lady had pulled down her skirt, and she was bracing herself on a fence, and the gentleman had pulled down his trousers, and they were involved in the most energetic lovemaking he'd ever seen or thought was possible. There was bucking and thrusting and screaming and screaming and bucking and thrusting, and he thought, this will be over in a minute or two. Five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour later, he walked in a state of shock back to the cold dregs of his coffee and sat thinking, oh my goodness, I can last five minutes sober, 10 minutes drunk, what am I going to do here? And then the old couple moved back into the room, very, very bedraggled, and the old gentleman went to the toilet and he thought, damn it, I'm going to go and ask him what the secret is. I'll have to tell him what I did and I'll probably get a punch in the mouth for it, but what can I lose? The old gentleman was down at the urinal. He walked in and explained himself, said what he'd seen, and said, can you tell me the secret? And the old boy said, come here, sonny. And he thought, I'm going to get my punch now. And he leaned forward and the old boy said, 60 years ago, that bloody fence weren't electric. <laughs> so don't go and buy yourself an electric fence. Energizer for the bedroom is the message here. <laughs> Okay, in this segment, we're going to talk about AMF and how we can reduce stresses. So let's look how this organism might help us in terms of stress management in the brave new world of climate change farming. Now, an integral component of climate change has been an increase in both abiotic and biotic stress in commercial crops. So what are those two? Abiotic stress is related to environmental issues like things like extreme temperatures, drought, salinity perhaps heavy metal stress and soil acidification, while biotic stress refers to pretty much to pathogen pressure or insect pressure, and it applies to things like fungal and bacterial disease, insects and root knot nematodes, etc. But here we're going to focus upon the critical role of mycorrhizal fungi in helping to counter the first of those two, the abiotic stress, and we'll begin by looking at salinity. So rising water tables, salt pans, brackish irrigation water have pretty much combined to become a regrettable feature of modern agriculture. In many cases, we created our own problems by denuding landscapes of trees. We've done it everywhere by pouring on the salt fertilisers and irrigating with high EC water. And that's got worse as we've gone deeper and deeper with our bores. Now, there are a few things you can do in that instance. We won't really detail them here, but humic acid and silica have proven pretty worthy inclusions with saline irrigation water to buffer some of the sodium impact. But here we're going to look at how mycorrhizal plants might be of benefit relative to salinity. Now, there are three key benefits associated with mycorrhizal colonisation in terms of salt management. So number one 
is the increased phosphorus uptake that is a major feature of mycorrhizal plants. And phosphorus is a huge mineral when we come to resilience, and that resilience includes salt resistance. There's also a high carbohydrate requirement to feed that big root attachment, that AMF root attachment, and that means more sugar sent down to the roots, and that leads to greater sugar accumulations in the roots of AMF plants. And that sugar energy bestows greater resistance to salt-induced osmotic stress. So you've got more stress resistance when you've got those higher levels of sugars in your roots. So that's number one, and it all comes back to increased phosphorus uptake. You know, these plants can get out and reach this very immobile mineral much more efficiently with that huge extension on their roots. Number two, salt stress has quite an impact on the sodium to potassium ratio. What happens is that the plant tends to take up sodium rather than potassium and so you're lacking the money mineral, and that's a pretty big price to pay. And what happens with the vast network of hyphae associated with AMF is that they can, as I mentioned earlier, they can mine potassium from between clay platelets, and that helps to ensure the potassium is delivered into the plant to size the seed and size the fruit and make you some money, basically, in higher sodium soils where you normally would have real issues with potassium availability. So really important in that context. And number three, relative to salinity, is related to calcium. Calcium uptake is always reduced in saline soils because high sodium is really antagonistic for calcium uptake, and, and that leads to a weak, more susceptible crop. So mycorrhizal plants have been shown to still accumulate all-important calcium due to the ability of AMF to break the bond between locked-up phosphate and calcium. So they deliver both minerals into the crop, and there's plenty of research that's chronicled the calcium delivery in high sodium soils, and that compensates for the shutdown of calcium from high sodium. So the mycorrhizal just mine calcium regardless and deliver it. And some of those studies have been Cantrell and Lindemann in 2001, Hart and Forsyth in 2012 relative to improved calcium uptake in mycorrhizal plants and saline soils. So just summarising that little story, the salinity story, AMF plants can handle saline soils much better and they're perfectly positioned to reduce the stress associated with that particular excess. As we often see, nature steps up to the plate to really to help counter our mismanagement in this instance. So let's look at AMF and drought at this point. So water has become the new gold in a world facing increasing drought and water shortages. Now, management of this increasingly precious resource is often pretty suspect. We store water in huge open dams and there are massive losses due to evaporation in our ever-increasing heat waves. Compare this to a 1% increase in organic matter. And that soil, with just 1%, can now retain 170,000 litres of water it couldn't previously store. There's no evaporation associated with this carbon sponge beneath the roots and there's no carbon footprint in delivering this water to the field. It's actually the ultimate water management strategy. There's another issue when we look at bores. Many bores are now being drilled to depths that were never ever before contemplated. I've got a friend in the Central Valley who grows almonds whom recently commissioned three new bores at a cost of $600,000 each. And here's the problem with accessing water at those depths. I mean, you're, you're a long way down at $600,000 per bore. Those aquifers were formed over millions of years as the water filtered drip by drip through the layers of rock. And when they're gone, 
they're not going to replenish in our lifetime or in the lifetimes of many generations to come. When they're gone, they're gone. And so you're probably thinking, what's that got to do with mycorrhizal fungi? Well, AMF fungi are a humus-building phenomenon. In fact, as I said, they may be responsible for 30% of all the humus in our soils. They release a sticky carbon-based substance we've talked about called glomalin that triggers the formation of organic matter and they sponsor the crumb structure, which can dramatically enhance infiltration so you maximise benefits from rainfall. During dry conditions, it's found that plants activate hormone-based signaling pathways that provide enhanced adaptation to drought stress. Now, this involves production of substances like salicylic acid, jasmonic acid, ethylene, and abscisic acid. And research has demonstrated that mycorrhizal plants have a better hormonal response, so they produce more of those four hormones with an associated increase in drought resistance. Now, these pathways, and what's interesting here is that those pathways that we're talking about, those hormonal pathways, are also linked to plant immune capacity. And as we've talked about several times, all known immune elicitors also spark yield increases. So in this instance, a more resilient plant, because you've got more of those four hormones, I mean, you should play around with salicylic acid, we'll talk about it shortly, but basically a more resilient plant turns out to be a more productive plant. So as I said, you can personally experience this potential if you like. It turns out that aspirin, you know, the painkiller aspirin, was copied from the natural form of salicylic acid, which has you know, been found in a variety of places, willow bark being one of them. And aspirin works as an immune elicitor, just like natural salicylic acid. So it's an immune elicitor and it builds yield when it's put on as a foliar. So so if you want to do a little exploratory trial, you're going to be quite surprised at what you see. I promise you the rate for your little trial is 24 aspirins per 100 litres of water. And you can buy the generic brands and that can cost as little as $2 for 24 aspirins. And so $2 per 100 litres. And that will show you some of the yield building potential with hormones that can be really, really remarkable response on some crops. Tomatoes and everything else from the nightshade family, for example, they respond particularly well to that little uh, salicylic acid boost. Just give it a try and you'll see what I'm talking about. Research has also shown that mycorrhizal plants under drought stress display enhanced moisture utilisation. Part of the reason is that tenfold increase in root surface area associated with the network of fine filaments. But the roots themselves are also better developed when colonised and that allows further access to limited moisture. AMF plants also show increased rates of photosynthesis and they've got higher levels of key cations like calcium, magnesium and potassium compared to non-treated plants, so it's quite a story. Let's have a look now at what I call the heavy metal menace. So widespread heavy metal contamination of our food producing soils is seriously messing with biochemical balance. And this in turn impacts soil fertility, it impacts the biomass of plants and microbes and it also impacts negatively our crop yields. And it messes with ecosystems and it messes with our health. Cadmium, for example, is a really good example. It's a common contaminant of things like diesel and DAP and MAP. And that's created serious toxicity issues in many intensively farmed soils. It's an emerging drama in the US where 70% of that country's fruit and vegetables are grown in California. And there's serious cadmium contamination in many of those heavily farmed soils. And it's proving something of a quandary for authorities I mean, what do they do? You can't shut down food production for the US. How does cadmium impact our health? Well, 
prostate cancer is one outcome. That, that form of cancer is actually the slowest killer and yet it's reached such plague levels that it's now become the largest killer of men in many regions. In fact, there's a simple research recipe where male rats are fed a specified dose of cadmium per 100 grams of body weight and two months later, not sometimes, two months later, every time they've developed a tumour on their prostate glands. So let's have a look at heavy metals in a little more depth. Heavy metals include what are called essential heavy metals, and that includes, you might not have realised this, but that includes key trace minerals like copper, iron, zinc, manganese and molybdenum. So they're actually, all five of those minerals are actually uh, heavy metals, but they're called essential heavy metals. Now, the non-essential heavy metals, that's where the problems come in. Although some of the essentials, if we overdo them, can cause problems as well. But the non-essential heavy metals, that's cadmium, lead, arsenic and mercury. Now, mercury is interesting. There's actually no safe dose of mercury. And yet, the dental profession chose to repair cavities with amalgams that contain 50% of that heavy metal. The World Health Organization recently determined that these time bombs off-gas something called methylmercury at 3 to 17 micrograms every day of your life, depending on whether you've got 1 or 10 of these amalgams. Now, whatever you've been told about the relative safety of amalgams, just check the mouth of your dentist during your next visit. You will never find an amalgam. Having said that, I'm not sure your dentist is going to be prepared to say, ah, for you. And it's usually reserved for the wounded cry from you when you get that inflated bill for his services. But anyway, time to get back on subject. What do AMF have to offer relative to heavy metal contamination? Well, it turns out that mycorrhizal fungi can help alleviate toxicity in soils contaminated with heavy metal. So there's plants that are called metallophytes and they can tolerate heavy metals and some will actually accumulate the toxins and that involves something called phytoremediation where you can reclaim damaged soils with plants that are capable of what's called hyperaccumulation of heavy metals and what's been found is that that form of bioremediation also involves mycorrhizal fungi on the roots of those plants. The potential is present when we see things like naturally higher accumulations of AMF in soils with zinc excess. So you'll find soils that have got very high levels of zinc and often you'll find higher levels of colonisation and that relates to the capacity of AMF to capture zinc and reduce toxicity potential. It's now understood that AMF can limit the mobility of heavy metals by complexing them with specific metabolites and transporters and they've also developed several strategies to dodge problems with the heavy metals so they can detoxify heavy metals within themselves and they can precipitate heavy metals and consequently mycorrhizal plants are much more tolerant to heavy metals compared to non-mycorrhizal plants so a plant can do well in those scenarios if it's colonized it's a big story let's have a look now at acidity we're still looking at these abiotic stresses we've got 700 million hectares of arable land that are now officially acidic and one of the potential outcomes from that is aluminium toxicity. So aluminium is the third most abundant mineral on the planet behind iron and silica, but aluminium becomes soluble in highly acidic soils and then it becomes toxic for plant growth and it can really affect our yields. What we find is that aluminium toxicity is much less in mycorrhizal plants. They produce three natural acids, and I'm not quite sure of the mechanics of that. They produce citric acid, acetic acid and malic acid, and somehow that seems to neutralise the negative impact of aluminium. The other issue with acidic soils is manganese toxicity because manganese becomes more available and that's more collateral damage associated with soil acidity. 
the improved nutritional status of AMF plants seems to reduce manganese toxicity. And no one really quite understands why that is, that you just don't get the same damage. If the plants are colonised, you don't have the same level of manganese toxicity. So I'm thinking that at this point you might have recognised that it might be a good idea to recolonise your farm with mycorrhizal fungi to counter the increase in environmental stresses that are coming with climate change. However, there's one other issue of which you need to be aware. Microbiologists have determined that wild plants host a wide variety of different AMF strains on a single plant. I mean, there's heaps of them out there in the wild to the point that there's little evidence to show that inoculating wild plants changes anything. They're already fully colonised and lots of different species of mycorrhizal on one plant. But that's not the case with cropping plants. It's not just that we've killed off this biodiversity with chemical extractive agriculture. It turns out that some of our modern hybrids are actually less attractive to these fungi. It's kind of like their natural affinity to AMF has been bred out of them and replaced with a higher need for applied MPK. It's, it's hard not to be cynical sometimes, but I guess it's no coincidence that the people selling those modified seeds are the same people selling the required extra NPK inputs and the NPK excesses then promote imbalance that increases the need for chemical support and the same organisations provide the chemicals. It's a nice business model, but it's not a model where farmers will ever increase profitability and sustainability and that's why we're trying to teach you another way. I guess the message here for home gardeners is to select heirloom varieties that are free from the limitations of hybridisation. If the commercial grows, it becomes abundantly clear that these compromised seedlings might need some extra support and that's in terms of commercial inoculums and there's absolutely no shortage of evidence regarding the gains that can come from relatively inexpensive inoculation of seed and seedlings with AMF. I mean we've conducted multiple trials on our research farms with treated versus untreated in terms of our particular inoculum which is called Platform and I'll tell you the difference is really quite profound. Welcome to the human health component of episode 5. This month, we'll focus upon a hugely important longevity tool. We'll talk about new research into the benefits of abstinence. I'm talking food here, not sex. Have you ever wondered why fasting is an institutionalised health strategy in several cultures? Think about Ramadan for Muslim people or perhaps Yom Kippur for the Jewish. As is often the case, there's traditional wisdom behind these rituals. The first common sense thing to recognise is the fact that digestion is the most energy intensive process in the human body. And when we stop digestion during fasting, that energy goes elsewhere. And our detoxification and immune systems are often the lucky recipients. However, we now understand that there's more than just redirected energy involved in the fasting process. And that new understanding comes from a health hungry demographic that's driving a dynamic new science. That population sector, of course, is the baby boomers. In this instance, the relative peace and prosperity of the 50s, after a fairly rugged decade before, provided the security that spurned an influx of births. And today, that makes up a large number of our 60 to 80-year-olds in our society. These people are often cashed up and enjoying their golden years, and this has driven a desire to live longer and the associated impetus to support research that might offer insights into that desired life extension. The science of longevity is now a booming business. And this science 
has recently determined that fasting may well be one of our most powerful longevity tools. Now, when we think about fasting, it's pretty common to envisage hardcore water fasting. Here we see 10 days of relative starvation that hopefully produces a worthwhile outcome. The strategy requires a huge dose of self-discipline and the side effects can often provide a pretty rugged cleansing journey with headaches and nausea and so forth. The exciting news from the longevity researchers is that a practice called intermittent fasting may well offer similar benefits to the starvation method, but it's much less arduous. Some of you are about to learn a new word that may well prove a game changer for your own health, happiness and longevity. I'm not talking about just the boomers here. This is hugely relevant to every one of us and it may well be amongst the most important things that I've shared with you to date. So what is this new life-changing word? That word is autophagy. The word is derived from two Greek words, auto meaning self and phagin meaning to eat. So the term literally refers to eating oneself, which sounds kind of cannibalistic, but it doesn't refer to the urge to desperately chomp on your own arm when you're stuck in a lift for a few hours. The discovery of autophagy and its mechanics have generated two Nobel Prizes to date, and you'll soon understand why. Autophagy is a cell cleansing process first discovered in 1962, where old and dysfunctional cell components are identified and literally gobbled up. Autophagy is a hugely important process which helps counteract the accumulation of old and damaged cell components associated with aging and age-related diseases. Now, one great example is the misfolded proteins so commonly found in Alzheimer's disease. These proteins accumulate to form something called amyloid plaques that really mess with communication between brain cells. Autophagy offers major protection against neurodegenerative diseases by removing that offending rubbish. The increased brain clarity so often and commonly noted during fasting is actually related to this cleansing phenomenon. When one of four of us over 65 now succumbed to the great forgetting and its pretty miserable aftermath, you begin to understand the importance of what we're about to discover. It turns out that it's counterproductive to be constantly well-fed. We're in the midst of an obesity epidemic in the developed world partially due to the easy availability of food on a 24-7 basis. However, this story involves more than weight gains and their consequences, and here's how it works. In a well-fed state, your cells are in a constant growth mode. This can actually have dire consequences, particularly relative to cancer. But in the presence of abundant food, the insulin signaling and mTOR pathways that tell your cells to grow, divide and synthesize proteins are constantly active. What's mTOR, I hear you thinking? Well, it refers to something called the mammalian target of rapamycin, which sounds more like a rampaging flesh-eating reptile than an important bodily function. This cell signaling system drives cell growth and protein formation, and when it's constantly active in the presence of abundant carbohydrates and proteins, mTOR effectively shuts down an essential cell cleansing process called autophagy. Now, there is a break to the mTOR accelerator and it's called AMPK. When you fast or exercise or both, you switch on the AMPK pathway that puts the cell into protective mode and it inhibits mTOR. It also activates autophagy. Now, 
I want you to understand that you're physically a community of 10 trillion cells. And when autophagy activates, your body can identify, destroy, and replace faulty mechanics within those cells. Without autophagy, you're effectively running that amazing machine called the human body without any servicing. I'm sure you're aware what happens to farm machinery in that scenario. I mean, I wish I thought a little more about that likely outcome before I committed to $400,000 of neglected machinery that came with my latest farm purchase. I'm now frowning at the flood of bills, but my mechanic is definitely smiling. The decline linked to ageing can be strongly linked to the absence of autophagy in an overfed world. We're talking about comprehensive research now linking poor autophagy to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, type 2 diabetes, atherosclerosis, fatty liver disease, stroke, coronary heart disease, cancer, obesity, and polycystic kidney disease. And of course, polycystic ovary conditions. It's now understood that fasting can activate autophagy, and it also increases the release of human growth hormone. So this is the anti-aging hormone that impacts multiple bodily systems for the better. It's a wonderful win-win scenario. So let's look at the dynamics of fasting relative to these two really desirable regenerative outcomes. Intermittent fasting can restore the balance between cell growth and cell cleansing that's so lacking in our ocean of abundance. How long does it take without food for autophagy to kick in? Well, a comprehensive 2070 study by Yang et al. demonstrated that the magic figure was 14 hours. That's why the popular strategy of one day per week of fasting can be a benefit. But 5-2 fasting, which is also a very popular strategy where calorie restriction is practiced for two days each week, that can be a great weight loss tool, but it doesn't kick in this important thing called autophagy. There's a growing body of research that suggests that 16-8 fasting may well be the best option. Now, this involves a 16-hour fast every day of the week. Here, you complete your last meal at 6.30pm and you recommence eating with a well-deserved brunch at 10.30am the following morning. Now, that involves 16 hours of abstinence and 8 hours where you can actually consume food. There's very little willpower and sacrifice involved here, so it's much more likely that you'll actually do it. I mean, you know, you can eat basically what you like within those time frames, but you've got to give that 16 hours where you eat nothing. And that includes, you can drink herbal teas, green tea, coffee, but you can't have milk and you can't have sugar in any of those. So let's look at some guidelines to optimise autophagy. How do we maximise this critical cleansing process? Number one, autophagy can be further fast-tracked with a combination of exercise and diet. Now, the most effective exercise is a form of interval training called PEAK-8. This is a 20-minute protocol that's practiced no more than three times a week, and it's been shown to really strongly increase the release of human growth hormone from the pituitary gland where it's often trapped. It was once thought that we stopped producing this longevity hormone as we aged, but it's now understood that we simply stop releasing it from the pituitary gland. And so it's a super beneficial strategy to learn techniques where we can release this precious load. In fact, one study looking at PK revealed an increase in human growth hormone measured with blood tests of 560%. So it's a pretty good strategy. Human growth hormone is often called the youth hormone or the happiness hormone due 
to the sense of well-being that it often confers. So the interval training concept was discovered by sports scientists working with elite sprinters. It involves something called anaerobic exercise, and that involves short bursts of energy followed by a recovery period. So here's how you can do it. In fact, most people can do it. You have to be pretty unfit not to be able to, but if you are, then fitten up a bit and you can try this technique. So here's how it's done. It can be out on the paddock. It can be in the park or on an exercise bike. If it was the running version, you walk out to the sprint site that you've chosen and you walk out there for two minutes and so you're warming up a little bit for two minutes and then you run as hard as you can run for 30 seconds. You've got to be gasping like a fish out of water after that sprint. You can't fool yourself and say, you yeah, went pretty hard. You've, you've got to run as hard as you can run. And then you've got 90 seconds recovery time. And if you haven't got your breath back after that 90 seconds, then you should never continue the process because you're lacking sufficient fitness and it just might kill you if you continue. Now, you never die on that first run. It's just like standing on a walking machine when you're doing a stress test at the doctor's, but you don't keep going. If you don't recover, reclaim your breathing and 90 seconds, well, you're not fit enough, so you wait till you are. So let your breath be your guide. If your breathing's returned to normal, then you repeat the 30-second sprint followed by 90 seconds recovery. And you do that seven more times for a total of eight cycles. And that's where the name Peak 8 came from. Those eight cycles involve a total of 16 minutes and then you walk home for two more minutes. So two minutes getting there, 16 minutes doing the workout, two minutes home. So it's 20 minutes in total. And that 20-minute exercise should only be completed three times a week. It's actually counterproductive to practice Peak 8 for more than one hour which is three sessions each week. Human growth hormone targets fat cells like a heat-seeking missile, but it also provides a host of other benefits. That includes increased muscle tone, increased protein synthesis, enhanced bone strength, improved lipolysis, pretty important, that breakdown of fats when we talk about things like cholesterol and high triglycerides and so forth. So it's got obvious implications for coronary heart disease. It stimulates the immune system. It improves pancreatic health, and it's very, very good for improved weight management. So that's a pretty big bundle of benefits before we factor in the multiple gains that are linked to this cell cleansing through autophagy. So number two, it's important to realize that autophagy can only happen in the complete and total abstinence of food. You can't cheat with the tiniest of snacks or a little bit of milk in your coffee or sugar. It's a response to no food that initiates this maintenance process and it'll stop the moment anything, any carbohydrate, protein or fats consumed, you just blew it. So you just realise that. You're trying to get that two hours in, it kicks in after 14 hours, so hence 6.30 and you start again at 10.30. There are some foods and drinks that have been shown to actually increase autophagy and interestingly, coffee is one of those. However, as I said, you can't put in some sugar, milk or milk substitutes or sugar substitutes because... Even things like stevia have been shown to trigger glucose sensors and negatively impact autophagy. Number five, red wine contains a powerful polyphenol called resveratrol. You've heard about the French paradox. I mean, they, you know, cream is the French gravy. Uh, they've got lots and lots of dairy products in their diet. They cook in butter often and so forth. And they have relatively low levels of coronary heart disease. And that's been attributed to their consumption from childhood of red wine, which contains resveratrol, which is so highly heart protective. In a 1997 study by Juan and his mates, 
demonstrated that one glass per day is the actual optimum dose. And incidentally, that glass should not be one of those giant balloon glasses that houses a full bottle of wine. We're talking about perhaps 200 mils as being the maximum dose. And after that, the alcohol begins to negate the phenolic benefits. Now, green tea is awash with polyphenols. In fact, it has over 4,000 bioactive components. The most important of these is a group called catechins. In a 2019 study by Presant and some of its friends, it was demonstrated that green tea polyphenols were able to induce autophagy. The most important catechin is called epigallagocatechin galate. A comprehensive 2009 review by a researcher called Thylec revealed that this remarkable antioxidant can combat insulin resistance, fatty liver, lung cancer, and type 2 diabetes. It sounds like a pretty good reason to build a little green tea into your dietary habits. But perhaps the most powerful of the autophagy enhancers is the active ingredient of the popular yellow spice called turmeric. Curcumin is that ingredient, has been the subject of over 600 published papers during the past few years, and the findings have been nothing short of amazing. Curcumin has been widely described as the most powerful anti-inflammatory ever researched. And it's been found to help counter some of the largest killers, things like coronary heart disease, stroke, arthritis, Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, and a lot of recent research on cancer. In 2016, a scientist called D. Oliveira and some of his colleagues found that curcumin is particularly powerful in activating something called mitophagy. This is autophagy in the energy generating centre of our cells called mitochondria. It's obviously a benefit for us to cleanse and maintain these little power plants in the face of what amounts to a low energy plague across the globe. I mean, how many of us out there desire more energy, but have never considered that a little dietary denial could well be the key to that increased energy? There's one really important consideration relative to curcumin. This substance is really poorly absorbed by our bodies, by our liver specifically, and so it really needs some help. That help can come in the form of black pepper and one of its highly active components called piperine. The next time when you're in a restaurant, when a a waiter wielding a wooden pepper grinder asks you, would you like some of the spice on your meal, you should answer, yes, thanks, I'll have plenty, because piperine increases the nutritional uptake of everything on your plate. Pepper is a tiny antioxidant-packed berry, and when we dry that berry back to a peppercorn, we effectively quadruple the antioxidant value. Piperine is an alkaloid which provides the pungency for which black pepper is so renowned. And while it's been shown to have anti-inflammatory benefits in its own right, it's magically transformative when you combine it with turmeric. In fact, there's a well-researched 20-fold increase in the uptake and utilisation of curcumin linked to this inclusion. Now, I can't help but take the opportunity to advertise one of my Nutrition Farms products at this point. I've taken nutrient-dense, chemical-free turmeric that I personally was involved in growing and nurturing and had it gently freeze-dried at a local facility. And then we've added some organic milled pepper that I sourced from Vietnam uh, into the mix at the rates that it's been shown to be most effective. And that product is available at my ntshealth.com.au site and it's called Curculife, and it's, and it's one of my personal favourites because I, I was there nurturing it from day one. So let's have a closer look 
at the proven benefits of autophagy. Many of our degenerative diseases are characterized by excessive growth, and that includes things like atherosclerosis, cancer, and polycystic ovary disease. It's fascinating to think that we can treat these diseases with dietary interventions rather than symptom-treating drugs. Fasting-induced autophagy can also repair age-related defects in our cells, so it's really got a multi-leveled potential. Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are characterized by toxic proteins that stick to neurons in the brain. Lai et al. in 2017 showed that autophagy in the brain slows significantly in the early stages of dementia. Conversely, a study by Rafsky and his colleagues five years ago demonstrated that fasting can initiate autophagy in the brain and protect from these neurodegenerative diseases. Both fasting and resveratrol-induced autophagy and increased life expectancy in several studies, and in one example where scientists actually removed the genes responsible for autophagy, there was no measurable benefit from either fasting or resveratrol, which of course tells us that those two things are linked to sponsoring autophagy. In 2017, Yang and his colleagues demonstrated that autophagy repairs damaged proteins that contribute to tumour formation in a process known as the tumour suppressor effect. Furthermore, in 2018, Ann Tunes and some of his mates published studies showing that intermittent fasting may contribute to the effectiveness of cancer therapies while also protecting healthy cells, so it can be effective even during chemotherapy. Yang and his friends also showed that autophagy protects insulin-producing beta cells in the pancreas. In fact, it's now theorised that impaired autophagy may be a root cause of this rampant disease. Type 2 diabetes is now often referred to as the coming plague. It's suggested, in fact, that one in three of us are pre-diabetic. In 2005, Halberg and his friends showed that intermittent fasting can reverse insulin sensitivity. That's a huge story. I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm pretty much planning my next 16-8 protocol. Studies have also shown that autophagy can help counter age-related muscle atrophy, and improve the muscle-to-fat ratio. It can also cleanse and recycle dysfunctional bone cells with considerable import for things like osteoporosis. And finally, in 2017, Asaki and his friends proved that autophagy can significantly reduce cardiovascular diseases. Now, coronary heart disease remains our largest killer, and most of us understand that it's largely related to excesses. The replacement of damaged organelles and proteins in heart cells has got pretty obvious benefits. Okay, that's enough. I've definitely convinced myself that this is a really important strategy and here's how I'm going to proceed. My evening meal that will conclude at 6.30pm each night will now include a glass of red wine and before that meal I'll have a tablespoon of my Life and a glass of delicious new apple juice that I've produced from Nutrition Farm so I'm going to use my own products because they're all chemical free. In the morning I'll begin the day with a cup of coffee without milk, sugar or stevia and follow that up probably with two cups of green tea during the morning. So three times a week before brunch, my 10.30 brunch, I'll practice peak eight for 20 minutes to further fast-track both autophagy and the release of human growth hormone. And at 10.30 a.m., I'll savour a healthy brunch accompanied by another coffee, and next time you hear from me, the age reversal will be so profound, I may even be in nappies. <laughs> no, seriously, though. These findings associated with a relatively painless change to eating habits are really quite mind-boggling, and they offer us the chance to reclaim responsibility for our own well-being without a huge sacrifice. 
I hope you've enjoyed this month's health offering. Okay, so let's have a look at some of the factors involved in the decimation of mycorrhizal fungi on our farms. Now, as I mentioned earlier, over 80% of commercial crops can enjoy a mycorrhizal association, but these creatures are missing in action in most soils. In fact, as I said, 90% of these creatures have been decimated by our modern farming strategies. So let's look more specifically at how we killed them off. Now, tillage is particularly destructive. These creatures burrow into the plant root and over a six-week period they produce this massive root extension of fine filaments. In fact, these hyphae provide a root tag-on that effectively multiplies root surface area by 10 times or a thousand percent. It's not hard to recognize that this root extension might be pretty valuable. Obviously, more nutrients and moisture can now be accessed, but that's just the start of an exciting string of benefits that can come from reclaiming our AMF. And tillage, well, it slices and dices these extensions. So these fungi detest the intrusion of cold steel. That's one key reason that no-till or minimum-till agriculture has proven so effective. It's also a good reason why home gardeners should always strive to sideline their shovels and try to directly plant into mulch covers whenever you can. The second contributing factor is unbuffered DAP and MAP. Of course, they are amongst the world's most widely used fertilisers and it's been found that they're a big player in the decline of AMF. So these popular fertilisers essentially involve phosphoric acid attached to the ammonium ions. When they get in the soil, they ionise, which means they break apart. And the harsh burning power of phosphorus, which is, of course, the hottest of all minerals, think of a phosphorus torch, that burning power can absolutely decimate this fragile network of filaments. In fact, phosphoric acid can sizzle this network like putting a blowtorch to human hair. And for this reason, and others relative to maintaining mineral balance, MAP and DAP should never be applied in large doses. And they should always be buffered with a carbon source. Now, the best of these involves humic acid granules. When these granules are combined with granular phosphate fertilisers at the rate of around 5%, they serve to buffer that burn while also creating a phosphate humate that's much less likely to lock up. Humic acid also increases phosphorus uptake by over 30% because of this thing called cell sensitization, where the cell membrane becomes more permeable and absorbs about 30 to 35% more. And humic acid is also a really powerful stimulant of mycorrhizal fungi. So it's a practice, that combination of humic granules with DAP and MAP, it's a practice that really is a win-win outcome. And I really suggest that just do it once, do half a paddock and leave half a paddock, monitor the results, see the difference in the control, and, and I promise you, you'll become a lifetime convert. Many thousands of growers around the world have done exactly that. Now, the third thing we're going to talk about is to avoid long fallows. So that you can continue to support the mycorrhizal network. Now, the mycorrhizal fungi don't care what plant it is as long as it's something they can inhabit. They don't differentiate between what we call a crop plant and what we call a weed. They need a support network. I get a little angry when I see agronomists still recommending chemical fallows where the only good plant is a dead one and herbicides maintain that kind of scorched earth policy. Nutrition farming involves learning from nature and working with natural systems wherever you can. And where does nature ever leave soil bare? 
the arguments to justify this silly practice usually revolve around moisture retention. And if you subscribe to these beliefs, I implore you to buy yourself an inexpensive digital thermometer and do some simple comparisons on the next hot day out in the field. I've measured soil temperatures of 52 degrees Celsius in bare ground compared to 30 degrees Celsius just metres away where there's plant cover. Now, 52 degrees will suck soil moisture pretty efficiently and it's also pretty harsh on soil life. So it's interesting to look at the work of the Paul Scherer Institute that have looked at cover cropping uh, relative to drought resistance. And many people think that's counterintuitive. But what they've shown is that the roots themselves, if you've got plant roots present, are 90% water. Roots themselves produce a substance called mucogel, which holds several times its own weight in water, that the bacteria around the roots produce a, a sludge material that works like water crystals, and the list goes on and on. In fact, I guess it's part of that concept of give and you shall receive. But they've demonstrated that, you know, you might argue, well, I can't take a field out of the system and grow a cover crop out and not feed it to animals or bale it or whatever. This is a concept of growing a cover crop and sometimes a good high carbon cover crop with a lot of organic matter and giving that back to the soil. So they're showing that 40 tonnes of organic matter from a cover crop produces 10 tonnes of humus in the end, and that lifts organic matter by 1%. The value of that 40 tonnes, which becomes 10 tonnes in terms of nutritional value, is around $2,000 Australian. So, you know, it's a fairly big amount that you've given back to the soil. And the interesting thing, when I've looked at a few people that have done that who've kept good records over the next four or five years, every year, that block outperforms every other block. So perhaps you can't afford not to do that from time to time. The fourth thing that we'll look at relative to how we knocked out our AMF High salt index fertilisers can dehydrate the AMF hyphae and these inputs should also be buffered with carbon just like DAP. Potassium chloride is probably the worst culprit. It's a very high salt index, but even potassium sulphate and, and all NPK fertilisers should, should never be oversupplied, but they should also be buffered. And, and again, the best buffering tool is humic acid granules. Now, if you're fertigating those fertilisers in a more intensive scenario, then molasses is another kind of high-carbon buffering option. The importance of only supplying what MPK is required in any given time can't be overemphasised. I've mentioned previously the mismanagement of nitrogen relative to humus loss. Now, if you recall, I cited research suggesting that for every kilogram of nitrogen applied over and above the plant's immediate requirements, there's a subsequent loss of 100 kilograms of carbon to the atmosphere. Now, remember again that nitrous oxide is 310 times more thickening of the blanket that traps the heat, warms the earth, and threatens our very existence. That's compared to CO2, so 310 times more potent in a sense. We can manage nitrogen much more efficiently. Now, Moving on, nematicides are amongst the most destructive of all farm inputs, but it's quite ironic when we look at their impact on AMF because all nematicides kill AMF indiscriminately. It's ironic because the very best protection against root knot nematodes is colonisation with mycorrhizal fungi. It's not possible for nematodes to coexist on the same plant with AMF. If you want to control the most destructive of all crop pests, and that's what nematodes are, then colonise your crops successfully with AMF. Now the irony extends even further 
when we look at the bigger picture, there are three natural control mechanisms for root knot nematodes. So that includes, number one, predatory nematodes. That's other nematodes that eat root knots 24-7. Nematophagous fungi, or what are called nematode-trapping fungi, they attract and lure and trap nematodes before consuming them for a source of protein. So they're a major control mechanism. And finally, as we've already mentioned, mycorrhizal fungi exude biochemicals that dissuade root knot nematodes. The nematocytes kill all three of these natural controls. And for some reason, the first bloke back is the root knot nematodes who says, you beauty, and can now multiply unchecked. And so we see people using nematocytes every two years, every year, every nine months, six months, every three months, because you selected for the very pest you were trying to control. In the absence of any competition and predators, they go crazy. And it's a classic example of how we can shoot ourselves in the foot when we're working against a natural system rather than with that system. Now, still looking at some of the things that have been counterproductive relative to AMF, fungicides, including fungicide-treated seed, can obviously affect a fungal organism and they can impact AMF colonisation and growth. Of all the fungicides, Benomil has been shown to be the most destructive. It's crazy here when you understand the potential of trichoderma, incidentally, Trichoderma is a seed treatment because that predatory fungi bonds with the plant and it gives protection for the full season rather than just a few weeks, which the fungicides on your seed offer. So it's a short-term protection compared with a full crop cycle protection. And I challenge you guys to simply Google whatever fungal disease you're trying to control uh, with the treated seeds and link that disease. It might be something like Pythium, for example. So just Google Pythium and Trichoderma and you'll understand the potential of seed treatment with trichoderma. It's kind of a no-brainer when you look at the vast body of research on this. Number seven, glyphosate. Glyphosate underpins the entire no-till strategy, and hence broadacre farmers are literally in horror at losing this weed killer. But human ingenuity will shine through, as it always does when we're forced to seek alternatives. Glyphosate will inevitably be banned at some point soon, because the negative impact on human health is now undeniable. I mean, glyphosate impacts all soil fungi. In a well-designed 2021 Argentinian study by Vasquez et al., the research team described significant changes in microbial communities with less fungal diversity and measurable increases in pathogens. This is really interesting because one of my favourites, Professor Don Huber, has published a paper demonstrating increased susceptibility to 40 different diseases associated with long-term use of glyphosate. Beneficial fungi are involved in all soil processes, but they're hugely important in terms of gas exchange and infiltration, and they're two important concepts. They create the stable aggregates that can allow or facilitate easy entry of oxygen and the exit of CO2 for photosynthesis. This crumb structure also increases all-important infiltration. That's another really important word. When we're destined to have our rainfall distributed in more extreme bursts due to climate change, we're obliged to understand the mechanics of infiltration, and that allows us to capture and store more of those heavy rainfall events. So we've talked about what has damaged our mycorrhizal component, but let's look about how we can reclaim our AMF on the farm. Number one, inoculate your seeds and seedlings. Now, this is the most cost-effective and most efficient way to ensure colonisation. You simply mix the spore powder with water 
and dip your seedling trays or your tree seedling bags in the solution until they stop bubbling. Seeds are treated with the AMF liquid and then you're basically ensured that you've colonised every plant right from the start. Now in broadacre situations with budgetary limitations, you might be able to afford to deliver sufficient spores and proper gills to just colonise part of your crop, but that's okay because it's still basically an investment of sort of 8 or $10 per hectare and those introduced fungi will slowly move their way through the field. So you've made a start and the return on investment for that is always good. So it's not perfect. You can't cover the whole crop because you can't afford to, but you make a start and now they start spreading and creating this matrix across the field. Number two is to inoculate cover crop seeds before direct drilling them into pasture that you might do to improve diversity. That practice will minimise cost and provide a good kickstart to colonising your whole paddock. So Colin Sice from New South Wales, many of you have heard of him, he's championed the productive potential of pasture cropping. He's demonstrated that 40% of your pasture should comprise introduced direct drilled plant species and then you start to see the big changes. You start to see much better utilisation, for example, of dung and urine uh, when you've got that legume component present, the clovers and so forth, and you can watch your fertility begin to build. So a combination of mob grazing and pasture cropping has really shown to be the best of all strategies to build humus in your soil. And this a wonderful substance will then build your profitability along with helping you to save the planet through carbon sequestration. So again, an ugly win-win scenario. At this point, I kind of feel obliged to promote our own AMF inoculum. It's something quite special that I developed and it's called Platform. Platform has got several strains of AMF, but it also has trichoderma and a range of beneficial bacillus species. It really does provide a really, really impressive biological kickstart and it's proven really effective in multiple countries now across the globe. I suggest you treat half a paddock and leave the rest. The difference between treated and untreated will certainly convince you of the benefits of AMF. Now compost, I think everyone who can compost should be composting, but compost encourages AMF and there are several papers to support this simulation. Composting is really good fun and once you start with it you become a convert, you become a fan of composting. Everyone does once they get into it, it's really good fun. Mycorrhizal fungi absolutely flourish in humus-rich soils and one particular component of both compost and humus can be a very effective tool to reclaim mycorrhizal fungi. I'm talking, of course, here about humic acid. Recent Russian research has revealed a really clear stimulatory response associated with humic acid and AMF. Basically, we saw humic acid stimulate both the colonisation and the mycelium development of mycorrhizal fungi it is a great tool in so many ways. Other strategies to reclaim your AMF communities, biochar. Biochar works really, really incredibly well with mycorrhizal fungi. So you've probably heard of these terra preta soils in the Amazon, which were these insanely humus-rich, superproductive soils that seem to grow like a living organism out from areas of habitation. And this phenomenon was discovered to be due to a centuries-old habit of burying charcoal from the cooking fires on the outskirts of small villages. And this triggered soil life to build humans more rapidly and to dramatically increase soil fertility. And it just sort of grew two or three metres deep. These black crumbly soils look good enough to eat and they're so productive. There's one organism that can build humus at this rate. There's only one, basically, if you think, well, how's that working? And that organism 
of course, is AMF because they produce the glomalin, which is now understood to be the triggering mechanism for 30% of soil humus. And that was, for me, that was a huge discovery. I'd done some work with biochar at varying rates. I'd not seen huge results, but I never thought of the concept of combining mycorrhizal fungi until I was talking to a very good scientist from South Africa and she said, you've got to see what happens when you combine biochar with mycorrhizal fungi. And I kind of yelled in frustration because I'd not thought of doing that during that research. It was silly of me, but I just hadn't thought of it. So we did some work and, oh my goodness, that is the super combination. Biochar with mycorrhizal fungi, wonderful, wonderful tool. Certain plant combinations can stimulate AMF. I mean, American microbiologist Dr. Wendy Tahiri has demonstrated that a combination of oats and crimson clover will improve AMF colonisation. In fact, these three clovers actually work better than one in some more recent research. Even underplanting legumes like clover under cereal crops, which has become very popular in places like Canada, can also create ideal conditions for AMF to flourish. You know, they like that acid base coming from the clover and they're going to do their thing and they're going to colonise more efficiently in those kind of conditions. So that brings some mycorrhizal fungi into the root zone of your cash crop, your cereal crop, your corn or your wheat. Finally, always combine soluble humic acid granules at the rate of 5% with your DAP or MAP granules. This buffers the phosphate burn while seriously stimulating potential AMF colonisation. It also stabilises these P inputs to create what I've called a, a phosphate humate. And that complex phosphate can no longer lock up, as we know P will normally do so rapidly with things like calcium and perhaps iron and aluminium and more acid soils. So that's just a few strategies that we can look at and we'll wrap this particular thing up shortly. Okay, so here amidst the sweet sound of rain upon the roof at the home farm office, that pretty much wraps up an information-packed episode five. I'm hoping that you're now motivated to introduce some mycorrhizal fungi to your farm or perhaps to nurture what you may already have. I also trust that you might consider 16-8 intermittent fasting as a powerful new wellness strategy and that perhaps you'll always remember that important new word, autophagy and make it part of your longer, happier life. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with family, friends and colleagues. If you feel inspired to submit a review, that will also help me on my mission to improve the lives and businesses of farmers across the globe. There was a wonderful response, incidentally, to my offer last episode for personal Zoom consults. Over 60 farmers and consultants from all around the world have already booked sessions and I'm I'm just loving the personal connection that comes with helping farmers solve some of their problems. So until next month, thanks for listening and, and I really look forward to our next time together.